Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, and indeed if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Good morning. I can certainly wish you a warm welcome in every sense of that word. Here we are, we're back in uh, Romans, and I'd love to take a minute to tell you about a motif that appears in many films. It's the uh, motif of safety. Uh, Depending on your generation, one of these should resonate with you. The Great Escape. In The Great Escape, there is that scene of reconnaître, that scene when you look along and you see the size and the number of the towers with the German guards. Let's not mention the World Cup. <laughs> um, but uh, there's the Ger- we can laugh until Tuesday, perhaps. Um, there's the towers, there's the dogs, there's the barbed wire that's about 20 feet tall, um, there's the guns, and let's not forget that we're in a foreign land. It's The Great Escape. Um, What about the Oceans films, of which there are too many, apparently? Um, But there's the same scene where they say, right, we need to go on a mission, we need to break into this vault. And then they list in the reconnaître scene, um, doing a bit of reconnaissance, they list, but then there's the fingerprint scan, there's the retinal scan, there's the lasers, there's the motion detectors, there's the people with guns, there's the place that it's underground, there's all these things that are put in place to keep people safe or objects safe. Uh, I did a Google search this week on uh, another theme, namely panic rooms. Only in America, you would think, but not so. The number of homes where panic rooms are installed, that safe place for people and objects that you love the most, with floor-to-ceiling walls more thick than you can imagine, with solid doors, with preserved food on the inside, so you can see what's happening outside. If you're threatened, you can run to a place of safety. These, the number that are being produced in UK homes has gone through the roof, pun intended. Literally, there is a lot of these panic rooms in American homes, in the homes of the wealthy, the rich, and the famous, so that they can be safe. 
we go to extraordinary measures, don't we, to make sure that we are safe, whether it's the third lock on the front door, whether it's installing um, a certain security system with CCTV in our own home. We uh, can put our money not under our mattress anymore. It goes into a bank. And there's an outcry, and rightly so, if we can't get access to our money or it becomes unsafe. Safety is a big longing in the human heart. We long for safety uh, physically. We long for safety personally, emotionally. We don't want to be in an abusive relationship. We want to be in a relationship where we are valued and when we are cared for, where our needs are met. And that's what Chris and Andy are going to try and do for Bertie and Connie, try and meet their physical, emotional needs. But one thing they can't do is to provide a place of safety spiritually. They can't provide a spiritually safe place. The only person who can do that is God in Jesus. And that's what Romans 8 is about. This theme is very, very strong in the the book of Romans. And many people have argued that Romans chapter 8 is the centerpiece of the book of Romans. Some people would argue it describes the centrality of the gospel in the whole Bible. It's that important if you want a biblical understanding of the doctrine, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, you've got to go to Romans 8 because he and what he does is in more detail in this chapter and maybe John 14 to 16 than anywhere else in the whole Bible. So we need to see and understand what this passage says about the security that every person longs for and that can only be found in Jesus. The security that every Christian has in Jesus. And Romans 8 follows Romans 7, and in Romans 7 we were seeing that the anxiety that there is because we're in this war, there's a war in the human heart that we can never win by ourselves. The law exposes that, it's the, it's the sin problem, and then there's the, the war that we cannot lose, and it's the Jesus solution. And in chapter 8 we now see this great symphony that many people know just 38 and 39, if you've got a Bible, they know the last two, the final riff, the final few chords, the, the zenith point of the tune. It says this, the climax, I'm persuaded and that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. That's where we're going. That's Everest in Paul's mind, in his heart. Just, he gets carried away. But it begins carefully and logically in verse 1. Here are some stepping stones before we get to that final chord next week, God willing. Look at verses 1 to 4, the first building block. Why can we have no condemnation? Why can we be safe and secure? Because the Spirit of God, verses 1 to 4, tells us and unites us to Jesus Christ. That's why there's no condemnation, because we're united to Jesus Christ. Verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 8. How can we know that there's no condemnation? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, changing us to be more like him. I could go on, but it's more next week. This deep-rooted confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit says, look at him. And that's what the whole chapter is about. But it begins by saying, verse 1, point 1, We are guilt-free. We are guilt-free. We are free from guilt because verse 1 tells us so. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through, Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Why does Paul need to begin this great chapter with this great reassurance? Because chapter 8 follows chapter 7, and in chapter 7 you have the war you cannot win and the war you cannot lose. But you're living in this tension that there's still a battle in your heart. There is still sin that needs to be put to death. There is still a time before Jesus' first coming, 2,000 years ago, and when he will return, his second coming. And in that time, no matter how long you live for as a Christian or as a non-Christian, there is a war in your heart that without Jesus Christ you will never overcome. But with him and by his Spirit's power, you can make huge strides of change to overcome. And Paul is saying, there is no condemnation whilst you live in this war that you cannot lose, but you're still in the war. And let me tell you about it. There's no condemnation, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not about you, it's about Jesus Christ. You're in him. The Spirit of God has united every Christian to the person of Jesus Christ. And in him you are safe, not by yourself, because we are weak, but he is strong. Now, what does verse 1 mean? This key word, condemnation. Two Greek words whacked together as normal by Paul with his uh, word processor typing away 2,000 years ago, or whatever he used, a, a, a quill and uh, a big parchment. It means, this word, no guilt anymore. No judgment against you. You are guilt-free. You are no longer considered that there's any cause or evidence against you. You are free. You've been pronounced legally innocent. It's very simple. You had punishment. You had a massive record sheet with your name against it, with my name against it. You were going down. You were in the dust. You had no hope. And then it says, verse 1, but now, because of Jesus, there is no condemnation. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you might think, yeah, I know. I get that. That's what the whole Christian message is about. Jesus coming from heaven to earth on a heavenly SAS mission to rescue me because I can't rescue myself. That's the good news in one word, rescue. A heavenly rescue mission, if I can have a few more words. I'm pardoned. Jesus takes the punishment. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal, I think, from verse 1 and why Paul has to say it once again, because I don't live like that, and I don't think you do too. I think people can work like this. You can understand the gospel at 15 or 55. You can understand that you're guilt-free in Jesus. He took the punishment in your place. He rescued you. But then as soon as you accept that, very quickly you can go back to living as if that is not true. You can go back to living and feeling on a Monday morning, on a Wednesday evening, that you are condemned, that you are guilty. We can believe that Jesus Christ died for us, and that's a wonderful thing. But we can't see the wonder of it. That's why we've sung about it. What do I mean? Paul doesn't just say, there's not any condemnation anymore. He says, verse 1, now there is no condemnation. You're not condemned. It's stronger than simply you've changed places. It means more than that. And the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, his job is to say, you are not guilty anymore. And he illuminates the beauty of Jesus, and he rubs that truth into our hearts every single day if we're a Christian. 
Because so often we say, I understand the gospel in part, but I live in a different way. When I have a bad week, I must be condemned once again. I ask for forgiveness, and then I feel better about myself. But then comes the next week, and I fall back into sin again, and I can feel condemned once again. And it can be a little bit like the daisy theology. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Paul says no, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. The gospel tells us that. It's not about how you feel. We've seen that throughout Romans. It's a legal change. It's a pronouncement. If that is true then, that this declaration has been made with huge writing across the sky from a heavenly judge called God the Father, accepting the sacrifice of Jesus as a son, who lived in the presence of the Holy Spirit and was empowered by him and sustained by him. Why do we ask for forgiveness? Why do you ask for forgiveness if you are without guilt? Why? And how does that work? Let me spend a minute just to explain this. When Jesus Christ, Romans 8 kind of gives an allusion to this. 1 John chapter 1 says it most clearly of all. Jesus Christ is standing before the Father as our advocate. How do you think it works when you ask for forgiveness? Do you think when you struggle in the same area of sin again for the uh, 700th and 59th time this year, do you think Jesus says to his Father, please will you just forgive them one more time because they've asked me for forgiveness? That's not how it works. That would be unjust of God because Jesus Christ would be asking for us to say, I will die over again, I will go to the cross again. Do you understand? Jesus Christ died once and for all. Your sins have been dealt with. They've been paid for in full. You've been pardoned. That's why there's no longer condemnation. It's not about how you feel. Jesus doesn't have to die for every sin you ask for forgiveness for. He's died for them all. And he's paid for them all in totality. And that's why Paul can say, no condemnation. Whether you have a good week or a bad week, it would be unjust of God to ask for another price to be paid when Jesus has died a sufficient death. But so often we forget that. For often it's about us. We understand that Jesus Christ has taken the blame for us, but then we live a different way. And Paul says, no, the Holy Spirit testifies to you that you're without guilt. Why? Whether you ask for forgiveness or not, God the Father accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice in totality. He approved of it. He accepted it. And therefore, you can say, no matter how I feel, I am without condemnation. There's nothing anyone can say against me because I'm accepted and approved and loved in Jesus Christ. God does not want two payments for sin. And so Jesus Christ reminds God of his own handwriting. He reminds God that he's accepted his finished sacrifice on the cross and so no more payment for sin is needed. Friends, you're guilt-free. Remember that? Have you forgotten that? The other points are shorter, I can assure you. Here's the second one, you're guilt-free, but here's the second point, you're spirit-filled. Every Christian is guilt-free, but then they're spirit-filled. Look at verses 8 to 11. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, 
yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. When it comes to TV, when it comes to some books on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of confusion. A lot of people, especially on the big screen, have shown a green mist descending on people, like the old uh, Ten Commandment films with Charlton Heston, with those huge calves that he had. The green mist would descend, and it's a, it's a depiction of the Holy Spirit. Very unhelpful. Some people can call the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. Different traditions do that. And again, it can kind of feel like a, some electricity that comes upon you in a kind of a, a CGI kind of fashion. Here we have three or four interchangeable words that describe who the Holy Spirit is. Did you see in those verses, verses 8 to 11, we have the word spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, spirit of him who raised Jesus. They're all interchangeable. They're all saying the same thing. Paul is saying if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The spirit of Christ dwells in you. The spirit of God dwells in you. God dwells in you. It's not about some kind of hocus pocus. It's the living God living in the life of every Christian. Now that is remarkable and no one in any other religion can touch that. If you go to Eastern religions, they have an understanding of God where God is the life force for everything. He is an emanation from creation perhaps. Either God is the emanation of creation, he comes from it, or he's perhaps the source and emanated from it. It can be either way, but they're saying the same thing. It's a spiritual understanding of God consciousness. If you go to Islam, then the idea of saying that God comes and lives in you would be absolutely horrific to Muslims. How could a great God do that? How could the transcendent creator of heaven and earth do that? It is absolutely crazy. It is crazy. But it's true, because it says so in the Bible. Verses 8 to 11, it says, Jesus Christ, through his Spirit, dwells in you. God lives in you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, dwells in you by his Spirit to empower you, to fill you, so that you know who he is. John 14 to 16, the counsellor, Jesus says, I'm going to have to leave you and go back to the Father but the counsellor will come and dwell with you. Then my Father and I will come to you. God dwelling in the life of ordinary people like me, like you. It's remarkable. It's so remarkable we just get used to the idea. Or perhaps we've not even grasped the idea. The transcendent creator of all things lives in you on a sticky Sunday morning in Epsom if you're a Christian. It's not about your age or your background. He's not a laser beam. He's not a force field. He's not a green mist. He's a person. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, come to live with you. Now, this is where the problems begin. When was the last time you got ready to have visitors round for a meal? If you're like me, normally about 24 hours before panic descends, the cupboard is used where all the junk goes. And heaven forbid if someone goes to try and open it when the visitors come, because everything comes tumbling down. You get the hoover out. There's an idea. The hoover's got dust on it, let alone the floor. So the hoover comes out. You start dusting. You put on your best shirts. You say to the kids, please be on your best behavior, because we've got visitors coming. 
But the good thing about visitors coming is that visitors go. Yes, I am kind of an introvert. Visitors come and visitors go, but just imagine how hard it is. I won't look at anyone in particular. When visitors come and they stay. What happens when visitors come and they move in with you? Perhaps it's friends, perhaps it's family, perhaps it's people from overseas, and you don't just dust, you don't just hoover, you need a radical clear out. This is pre-planning, this is trips to the tip kind of stuff. You kind of think, we need more space, that chair's got to go, the second TV's got to go, third child, they've got to go, all that sort of stuff. You have a massive clear out of anything big and bulky and plasticky, because people are coming to live with you. You change your behaviour because... Whatever you're going to watch, they're going to watch because you've only got one TV. Whatever you're going to cook, you're not going to cook meals for them, heaven forbid, so you're going to, they're going to share meals with you. Um, whatever music you're listening to on your only stereo that's piped through Sonos around the house, they're going to be listening to that too. And now this passage says that if you're a Christian, God has come to live with you. So what you watch, he watches. What you read, he reads. What you listen to, he hears. Wherever you go, he's with you. You get prepared when friends come and stay with you. And you have a massive clear out. What about when God comes to live with you? It doesn't say that he comes to pass through. Verse 11 says, the spirit of God dwells in you. Can I ask you candidly, when was the last time you had a chuck out in your life? Because if God is with you and dwells in you and sees what you see and listens to what you listen to and is with you every step of the way, are there things that you're just comfortable with now that would cause offence to him, that would aggravate him, that you know doesn't please him? Because you are guilt-free, but you're also spirit-filled. And that means... You should be thrilled if you've forgotten and you've been reminded by the Bible that God lives in you. That should thrill you. should motivate you for change and also challenge you. Because God isn't passing through. He doesn't say, I'll stay with you if. He dwells within you. And that's thrilled and challenged me this week. Guilt-free. Spirit-filled. Number three, Jesus-centered. Christ-centered. Jesus-centered, Christ-centered. Look at verse is five to seven. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The Holy Spirit, his person, is not electricity, he's not green mist, so what does he do? John 14 to 16 says it equally clearly. When the Spirit comes, says Jesus, he will glorify me. The person and work of the Holy Spirit never ever draws attention to himself. He always comes and exalts, illuminates, glorifies Jesus Christ. He's completely humble. He's completely unlike me. I want attention. Holy Spirit never wants attention. He never wants the focus. He never wants the limelight. He wants to illuminate and center everything and every believer on the loveliness of Jesus Christ. 
doesn't zap you with power when you become a Christian. It's not like you can suddenly walk on water. It's not like you can suddenly sing brilliantly when beforehand you couldn't. Oh, I wish that were true. He doesn't give you kind of a naked power ability. The one you always wanted, I just want to become a Christian so I can play the piano. I just want to become a Christian so I can do this or that. It's not how it works. The Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes, in every believer, he shows the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's his job, so to speak. But look at verse 5. Let me just prove it to you. Do you see a number of times you see the word desires? It's not power, it's desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires or tells, doesn't say tells you, it's not like a download, a plug-in like the Matrix. This is saying what the Holy Spirit desires, a Christian will begin to desire more and more as they know him personally. The Spirit of God from the beginning of time has dwelt in holy love and communion, a, a holy dance with God the Father and God the Son enjoying one another reciprocally. God the Father enjoying the Son and the Spirit. God the Spirit enjoying the Father and the Son and the other one as well. They've just been enjoying and loving one another, and all of creation is created out of an abundance and a, an overflow of their enjoyment of one another, not out of need. It's so important to remember that. They're passionately in love with one another. It's about desire. It's about yearning. It's about love. The Holy Spirit does not tell you what to do, but it gives you fresh affections, fresh taste buds, fresh longings. So you want to be with God's people. You want to read the Bible. Why am I reading the Bible all of a sudden? Can't get enough of it. Why am I telling people about Jesus? Because I don't want to keep him to myself. Because I love him. It's about desires. And the greatest example, and something I experienced too, was about 20 years ago, I was at university. I was up in a pub uh, on the Strand, and I turned on a winter's evening. There was snow on the ground. It's kind of a C.S. Lewis Narnia picture. And I turned, and I started to walk towards St. Paul's Cathedral. And uh, J.I. Packer has this example in his book. And it was my experience too. I turned and I was walking, crunch, 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 with my feet on the snowy ground towards St. Paul's Cathedral. And I thought, as I said to my friend, wow. And we went and heard some Evensong there. I thought, wow, look at Christopher Wren's architecture. The guy has got some game. Look at the stonework. Look at the beauty of the way it's been cleansed and the proportions of it. It's incredible stonemanship and architecture and design. Not once did I turn and say, wow, look at that thousand-watt floodlight that's above the newsagent that cast the light onto St. Paul's Cathedral. I didn't do that once. You'd be crazy. They're hidden on purpose. Why? Because they serve to illuminate the beauty of the cathedral. And that is exactly, J.I. Packer says, the job of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He never draws attention to himself. But he wants you to see the beauty of Jesus. He wants you to desire Jesus more, to know Jesus better, to love Jesus. So you clear out all the junk of your life that would displease him. The Holy Spirit is the hidden floodlight. And he says, look at him. Look at Jesus. Listen to him. Be attentive to his voice. Get to know him better. Hear his word. Spend your life serving him. And I will empower you to do that. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Always turning us away from our inward focusedness and looking at Jesus and enjoying him and savouring him and knowing him. And that means freedom. When we're not constricted to our own desires and needs. We're looking at Jesus and saying, how can I know him more? Because it's not like the daisy. He loves me. 
he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. It's not like that. Jesus loves you to bits. And he knows all that you've done. And he will never leave you, says the gospel. Oh yeah, you don't know what I've done. I haven't been to church for a long time. And there's a lot of distance between me and God, you may think. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, and if you're not yet, listen in. How strong do you think Jesus' love for you is? Is it to the moon and back, like that kid's book that's great? One rabbit saying to the other, we, you know, I love you more than this. No, I love you to the moon and back. It's more than that. It's to the cross and back. The night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, God the Father says to God the Son, so to speak, will you do this for me? Jesus says, is there any way that I can't do it? I know how bad it's going to be. And Jesus says to God the Father, I will do it because I love you first and I love the people that I'm going to go to the cross for. I am going to be crushed by the powers of hell, but I love you so much and I love them just as much. I want to go to the cross for you, Father, and to win for you a people. That's how much you're valued. That's how much you're loved. That God doesn't just dwell in you, he died for you. It's not about how you feel, it's about historical rooted truth so that a living personal relationship with the maker of the universe is possible through Jesus Christ. No daisy theology here. God the Father wasn't able to dissuade Jesus the Son to not go to the cross. Jesus was committed to the glory of his Father and so he died for him. He's got a grip on you that he'll never let go of no matter how you feel. It's about, you see, being guilt-free. It's about being spirit-filled. And it's about being Christ-centered. God the Spirit lives in you. So clean up your act with his help if you need to. Not because Jesus will condemn you if you don't. Because he was condemned for you. And that's why you should clean up your act. Let's pray.